We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by the Speaker of the State House of Representatives, Matthew Ritter. Good morning to you, sir. Aaron, good morning to you. Just a few days away from the start of the 2022 legislative session, I know when we spoke a year and change ago, we were talking about outdoor festivities for the opening day. What's it going to look like this year, considering the pandemic? Yeah, well, fortunately, thanks to, to vaccinations uh, being widely available now, we can we can move back indoors and, and have somewhat of a normal uh, opening day. So the governor will give his speech in person. Uh, we will be there in the chamber around 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, not, not as long as the, uh, the odd years, right? Cause in the even years, we already have adopted our rules and things like that. So, you know, we'll have some house cleaning to do a couple of introductions and announcements, and it should be about 45 minutes in the house. And then we'll turn over to the governor around lunchtime. How are things going to operate this year with legislative hearings and committee meetings and things like that? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to take it almost, you know, month by month or, you know, handful of weeks at a time. Right now, we're going to start the month of February. We announced this uh, uh, a couple of days ago with uh, everything on Zoom for the month of February. But, but that does not mean that's what March will look like or April will look like. And the thought behind that is the month of February will mostly be public hearings, which Zoom was very, very successful last year. It, it gave a lot more people access for anybody who's never testified at the state capitol. You normally have to show up around nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. You get a lottery number and you may be forced to sit around all day. I don't know about you. As, as beautiful as the Capitol is, I'd rather sit you know, at work or at home uh, and wait for my number to come up and, and then log onto a computer. So that makes a lot of sense. There was some sort of bipartisan understanding that was a good way to start February. And then we'll see where the COVID rates are. My, my fervent hope is that as we get to March, we're going to see a, a very, very sharp decline and positivity and hospitalizations, which will allow us to to look at having the in-person committee meetings, you know, the committee meetings where they're voting, the committees are voting bills out, making amendments to bills. Uh, it, it's my goal and my hope that we can have that open to the public. And the building is open to the public, by the way, but, but right now with the public hearings on Zoom, there would not be much to watch unless you had a computer. Last year, because of the remote public hearings, there were some marathon hearings, some lasting, I believe, 24 hours. Do you expect more of that this year? You know, it depends what legislation there is. The, the even years tend to be a little quieter, um, you know, because we don't have much time to take up really, really controversial bills, right? That could kill almost a week 
you know, a couple of days each in the House and Senate, you know, it's hard to do those bills in an even year. Doesn't mean there may not be one or two, but it's not like the odd years where you have a lot more time. Um, you know, the only downside, you know, I was talking about this with some of the, the you know, Republican leaders as well. With the Zoom is you get a lot of people who testify who don't live in Connecticut, and there's nothing you can do to block that. But I can tell you that the vaccine hearing that we had last year um, had a lot of non-Connecticut residents, you know, it's sort of a, a national movement you know, the Robert Kennedy Jr. type movement. And so you had a lot of people testifying who, who are not from here. So that's the one downside to it. But I mentioned the good side of access. But I hope we don't have any that long. But if we do, you know, it's up to the committee chairs to determine when they want to end the public hearing. And, you know, my mind, anywhere between 12 and 18 hours is pretty generous for people to get their, their point across. After we emerge from the pandemic, what do you see public hearings looking like in the future? Could there be some sort of hybrid? I think there's got to be, Aaron. I don't think the public would allow us to go back to all in person because it really requires you to you know, take a day off from work in many cases to testify. So I suspect what we'll do is we'll, we'll make sure we have the technology in place to do a hybrid. Um, you, you probably would have to, as a committee, you know, start maybe in person and end in Zoom uh, or something like that uh, or alternate one by one. But I think we'll have the technology in place to do it. We'll have to train the chairs and the staff to do it. But I suspect that'll be the future in Connecticut. And I'm all for it. As you noted, this is the short session. What are the top three issues you anticipate uh, being tackled this legislative session? Yeah, the first thing we're going to deal with uh, in a matter of days is is getting, you know, getting through hopefully the last last throws of, of what I sort of call the COVID emergency powers. Um, the governor has uh, issued a, a executive orders going back to March of 2020. We've had various extensions. You know, look, fingers crossed. We, we really hope that as we get to April, we're in a much, much better place. Um, and if that's the case, um, we'll begin to wind down most of those those powers. And, and at that point, you know, hopefully go back to where we were, um, you know, prior to this pandemic to some extent. You may, you may have a need for a few here and there, but we're down to about 11. And I think we get rid of some others uh, in the future as well. Um, beyond that, you know, children's mental health keeps coming up. We need to find ways to to increase access um, as we as we get out of hopefully the or close to the end of this pandemic. Um, there's no question that we're going to have our, our children are going to need a lot more help, uh, both academically and also with mental health services. So look for uh, a bipartisan support on legislation around that. And then we got our, our budget, which, you know, about when I started in 2010, we had a rainy day fund of zero. And people always say, well, why do you exaggerate? I'm not. It was zero. We had no dollars in the rainy day fund. We're now, you know, shattering records close to about $3.6 billion um, and another surplus projected for, for this fiscal year and fiscal year 23. So look for us to try to find a way to help help low income residents and middle class residents alike. Uh, I suspect earned income tax credit expansion. I agree with Senate President Mooney and the governor on that. Going to 41% will help some of the poorest people in the state of Connecticut by putting money directly in their pockets for those that work. Um, and then we'll look at other things that are out there. Is it a child tax credit? Is it property tax relief? Um, it's a good debate to have. And again, I suspect that'll be bipartisan as well. On the governor's emergency pandemic powers, it seems every time those have been extended, they lose a little more support in the General Assembly. What is the governor seeking this time? He's seeking to have some of these powers enshrined into law and to continue the public health and civil preparedness emergencies in case COVID bubbles up again? So not quite. Um, what, we are, what he's asked us to do is codify 11 executive orders uh, for a period of time. We're probably looking at about 60 days, Aaron. Uh, that will bring us till April. 
Um, most of them are pretty non-controversial. For example, the ability for retired teachers to, to not have to go back through the certification process to help out public schools, right? No one's going to oppose that. Um, boosters for healthcare workers. I don't know many people opposed to that, at least in my caucus. Um, but yes, there are some more controversial ones, mostly around masks. Um, and you know, all we're, we're looking to do is extend that for a period of 60 days. And the discretion is with SDE and DPH. The legislature is not saying what the rule should be. We're going to let the public health experts determine what the rule should be, and we'll follow their guidance on that. Um, once we codify those, though, that's it. There will be no more, you know, there will be a continuation of the emergency, but there's not going to be a continuation of the governor's ability to issue executive orders, if that makes sense, Aaron. So if the governor felt that he needed additional laws in place for a period of time, he would have to come to the legislature and we'd have to vote on it like any other piece of legislation. But his ability to issue EOs will expire on February 15th. We are not renewing that ability. To what extent would you say this has become a a political football since the pandemic started and there was unanimity in giving the governor certain powers to to manage things during the pandemic? Yeah, it's political to some extent, um, but but it's also a reflection of where the pandemic is, right? And, and I try to, you know, explain it this way. We're not in March of 2020, right? Between the vaccinations, which are very, 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 very important critical tool, um, the new COVID-19 pill, the antiviral pill that Connecticut is just getting its first shipments of, which is shown to keep people out of the hospital, um, with all the new technology in place and the treatments in place and what we've learned, we're not in March of 2020, right? We're also not in March of 2019, right? We, all, we still have uh, a very uh, dangerous virus that is circulating um, and just a month ago was, was raging out of control across the northeastern, you know, the northeastern United States. So how do you find a compromise between March of 19 and March of 20? And I think the answer is, to your point, Aaron, is it's you are in a different place. And the governor was issuing executive orders at a blistering pace in March of 20. I mean, think about it. Everything from the ability of restaurants to serve cocktails to go to how do you deal with um, remote notaries? I mean, he was changing statutes after statutes because we had to respond to something that was going on back then. He's not doing that anymore. Since September, we're literally talking about a dozen executive orders that he thinks he needs in place. So what we're saying is this. Yeah, it's political for some, but for the most part, there's a need for about 10 to 11 executive orders right now. Um, That's kind of where we are with this pandemic. It's not over, but it's also not the same as it was almost two years ago. And it's also what I would say to the folks that are saying, you know, King Ned and and, and I'm being oppressed and all this stuff, you know, it's just not accurate. Um, And I think people will look back very fondly at the way Connecticut handled um, COVID-19, hopefully when we're in a better place in, in a few weeks or a few months. Um, we had very high vaccination rates. We did our very, very best to keep people safe. Um, and the, the, the loosening or the relaxing of some of the restrictions does not validate the arguments that some people have made for two years when the pandemic was raging out of control prior to vaccines. What it is, is an acknowledgement, though, that because of science, we're able to go to a different phase of the pandemic. You mentioned children's mental health uh, as another key issue this session. What in particular do you hope to accomplish? You know, there's a lot to do. Um, one of the first things we have to do is we got to make sure that our, our schools have the, the, the social workers or the mental health workers in place that they need. So we're probably going to fund some grants to help school districts bring people in to help them. Because one of the goals is to keep kids from the emergency room. Right now, a lot of kids, if they're going through an episode, their parents have no choice but to go to the ER. 
right? They go to Children's Medical in Hartford, for example, and we need to stop that. And so one of the things we've heard is a lot wait, a really good time um, to, to kind of catch things at the beginning is in schools where kids often trust their teachers, trust the people around them, feel like they have supports. Um, and that's where they spend a lot of their time during the week. So that's one thing. Number two, it's, it's making sure that we can have access to providers across this country who are properly licensed and accredited through, through telemedicine, right? We have to make sure that we have, we waive some of those requirements so that folks can get on a computer and access providers that might be in Massachusetts or Rhode Island or New York, where they have very similar credentialing. It's a long-term plan to, to build some facilities as well. We'll put some capital dollars into that to make sure that it's not just emergency room beds, but also what we call step-down um, uh, beds. So we need some middle-level facilities where folks are not in an emergency, but they may need to be you know, observed for a period of time. So we have a great group working on it. Again, bipartisan, Representative Exum from West Hartford and Linehan from Cheshire have worked with Senator Anwar. Uh, and I expect that to be, again, a very good bipartisan bill at the end of the year. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Connecticut State House Speaker Matt Ritter. Now, on the issue of tax cuts, it's nice to be able to talk about tax cuts as opposed to how do you fill a, a hole in the state budget. But a few weeks back, the governor warned that, you know, there there could be an issue of kind of going overboard with tax cuts and making it so they are not sustainable in the out years of the budget. Do you share that concern? Um, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll tailor legislation to sort of address that. I, I will tell you that I do think we've gotten it wrong in Connecticut um, for decades and how we do tax policy. We really should begin to look at what Congress does, in my opinion. And this sort of reflects the governor's sentiments and also the Senate Republicans' proposal uh, to reduce the sales tax for only the rest of the calendar year, very much in the same spirit. In Connecticut, what we have a tendency to do is when we have really good years, we pass all these laws that never expire, right, uh, for budget purposes. And we spend on programs that never expire. And then when things are bad, we change laws forever in perpetuity the, the other way. And so it's really hard, right, if you're a business, if you're a, a resident, to know what to think of it, right? You know, okay, they extended this tax forever, and then they brought down this tax forever. Is it really forever? We really should try to mirror what they do in D.C., which is you, you move in years at a time, right? You don't know what four years is going to bring. You don't know what three years is going to bring. But you often know in Connecticut where you stand about 24 to 36 months out. So I'd rather our tax reductions not be something that we promise for 45 years. And the same with certain spending programs. We can't promise that forever. Rather, budget should be a reflection of who's been elected, what's going on in DC, what's going on with the economy, and where you are from a budgeting perspective. And if tax cuts work um, the way we want them to work, and the budget continue, you know, stimulates the economy, puts money in people's pockets, keeps the budget going well, then you'll have the ability to extend them, A, because you have the, the ability to do it financially, and B, they prove to be well done and well targeted. Versus we've had some tax cuts that never really worked, never brought something in, um, are still debated to this day about whether they were giveaways to big corporations. So let our tax policy be a little more um, narrowed in its scope and not think 25 years or 35 years, but think in terms of two or three years. If we do that from a tax policy, we can change if we need to. We can make adjustments if we need to, um, but also make sure the budget is doing what it needs to do. So with that said, what would you say is item number one on tax cut agenda? 
It depends who you ask. Um, I think one thing I see broad-based support of amongst myself and Senate President Looney and the governor is the earned income tax credit. If you read comments from economists in local newspapers and you know Connecticut Mirror articles, the EITC, as it's called, is the one program that has buy-in from you know conservatives and, and liberal economists. That we have at 41% right now. Uh, we, we moved it up in the last budget. The governor then found federal dollars and moved it up even further. We'd like to be around that number. So I offer my full-throated support for that. It's a really good program. It's always been bipartisan in many ways. Um, and it's putting money directly in the positive, really hardworking, but yet very poor Connecticut residents. After that cut is where it gets a little more complicated. There are some folks who want to look at the sales tax. There are some folks who want to look at the property tax. I've heard of car taxes. Um, you know, I've heard child tax credit, which is very popular in my caucus, which we're waiting for DC to extend, and that hasn't happened yet. But here's the thing. We'll have a conversation. We'll figure it out. We have to live in the parameters of our revenue estimates. Um, and, and the bottom line is, I think we're all committed to providing some relief, particularly as inflation continues to creep up uh, over the over the last few months, and unfortunately, probably going to creep up a little bit more in the coming months. Certainly, Connecticut has received an influx of cash from Washington. How concerned are you that there might be a budget cliff in the out years of the budget when when that spigot shuts off? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question that we were able to enhance some appropriations because of federal dollars, right? And so people's initial reaction is, well, how will you continue that level of funding a couple of years down the road? Well, one way you do that is what I said about a few minutes ago, which is you have to keep in mind the federal money running out at the end of calendar year 24 when you start thinking about these tax cuts that you want to make. Um, and so you can't assume that you're going to have the same ability to make appropriations um, that we were able to do uh, this past cycle. And all that's got to be in consideration when we think about the length and extension of either spending plans or on the revenue side. So I think we'll be fine. Um, I think that we tried to use the COVID-19 funding as often as possible for one-time expenditures. Of course, it did creep in a little bit on the um, on the general's fund side, um, but I, I think we'll be okay and we'll be very mindful of that because, uh, again, we don't want to have a cliff in 2025, but we also have a $3.5 billion rainy day fund, um, which is the maximum amount that we can have statutorily. It's at the cap uh, as a percentage of our general fund, and that account that fund is how you hopefully can begin to handle the highs and lows that may happen, right? When I started, a $48 million hit in a fiscal year required us to make cuts or raise revenue to get to a bottom line. Now, you would have the ability to say, for $48 million, the rainy day fund is there, we can use it and then refill it at a good time. That, that number, that amount is so critical, and it's been reflected in our credit rating on Wall Street. We're very lucky to have that. Your friends on the other side of the aisle have called for a, a special session to address crime, in particular juvenile crime. Do you see that getting a, a lot of attention in, in the regular session? There will always be bills and legislation on it. Um, and, and everybody's interested in trying to really think about how do we address what is essentially a couple hundred kids, right, that, that really are, do need a lot of help and a lot of support. And when you don't give them that help and support, right, there is no question that you can't arrest your way out of it. And we've seen some really terrifying, scary incidences. I don't deny that. Um, a couple of things. Number one, we made one change administratively that, that was, was widely applauded, I think, by a lot of advocates on all sides, which was to make sure that judges had access 
to an entirety of an arrest record, right? We actually had some technological glitches, which would prevent judges on the weekends from actually seeing the full history of somebody's record arrest record. And that was in some cases not making them perhaps understand this might be the fourth or fifth time that someone had stolen a car. So that's number one. Number two, you know, I know Tony Walker, our chair of approps, uh, representative staffs from the house chair of judiciary are looking at what type of facilities can we put in place? We, we acknowledge that there is a need to provide quick wraparound services, not two weeks after someone's arrested, but one, get them arraigned immediately the Monday after they're arrested over the weekend, and if possible, get them those support services immediately. You know, for some kids, the hard part is you, you arraign them, you send them back home as they await, you know, their next court date, and they're going back into the same environment that caused the problem, right? It could be, you know, could be a bad home situation. It could be gang pressure. It could be peer pressure. And so you're putting them right back in that same environment. And I think one way you break that cycle is how can you get services that keep them out of that same environment that got them in trouble? Um, if we need to tweak our judicial code to look at that, people are always willing to. But I actually don't think it's a matter of arresting a bunch of people uh, and sending them to prison for nine years. I don't think that's going to solve the problem. And it's not really what the trend in this country has been in red states or blue states. But Connecticut can do better about intensive services for these kids. And if, that, and if that fails, if you've done all you can do, you've provided the counseling, uh, potentially a job in some cases, and that doesn't work, well, then that's where the criminal, the criminal justice code comes into play, I think. Following the death last month of a 13-year-old middle schooler in, in Hartford, apparently from a fentanyl, fentanyl overdose, there, there were calls for action in, in terms of making overdose reversal drugs more available in schools and in other settings. Is there something the legislature can do on that front? We can certainly mandate it, um, right? And I suspect there will be bills to do that. I have no problem. Um, you know, at the end of the day, as long as school nurses feel comfortable that they, they can receive the training and then utilize it, uh, it w- does not bother me. Um, look, obviously, that's a, a terrible situation. I'm a, you know, I have two kids in the Harvard Public School System myself. Um, for a lot of us, you know, it's not a Hartford issue, right? It's across the state. And clearly the kid got it from what it sounds like or what you read in the newspaper from his house. Um, you know, it's just, it's an awful, awful tragedy. Um, and it's not confined to Hartford or New Haven. It's all across this country. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the increase in the, you know, the, 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 the drugs and what people are putting in them. It's terrifying, both as a, as a, as a, as a father and as a, as a politician. So, you know, kudos to the Harvard Police Department for, I think, a thorough investigation and getting right on top of this. And if putting Narcan in school helps save lives, I'm all for it. Traffic stops have been way down during the pandemic. This year, the, the state is rolling out a trial program to enforce speed limits in construction zones. Do you see the legislature approving wider use of speed enforcement and or red light cameras? Yeah, it's like deja vu all, all over again, as uh, Yogi Berra would say. And I'm a Red Sox fan. See, I can I can even quote Yankees. Um, look, we had bills going back to 2012. It was called red light camera bills, where if you ran a red light, you got a ticket. Never got support in the legislature. Um, I don't know that attitudes have really changed all that much. I don't think most people view speed cameras or red light cameras any more favorably than they did. It, you know, personally, I was always okay with the red light cameras at certain critical intersections. I know downtown, um, it would be useful because traffic can get really, really bad, um, especially in the wintertime when snow curtails the amount of road available for cars uh, or takes away a half a lane or something. 
Um, but it just never got there. So I don't suspect that the, the mood has really changed on that. You know, the construction zone thing was specific because we've seen so many construction workers injured and killed um, in Connecticut because people go way too fast in those. But, you know, for now, I suspect that's where it ends. But if, if people, you know, have broader based support for municipalities to do this, I would definitely listen because I've seen some really dangerous situations, as I've said, in, in driving, you know, from downtown Hartford back home on certain occasions. I know it's a short session, but one of the pieces of unfinished business last year was making pizza the state food. Is that going to happen this year? I believe we passed it in the House, if my recollection is correct. Um, you know, again, it's not the number one priority, but it was a nice gesture to some of the great pizza establishments here in Connecticut. If if the folks who feel strongly about the bill want to bring it back and we have time, um, I'm not opposed to it. I believe I supported it last year. He is State House Speaker Matt Ritter. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Aaron. Have a great day. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.